This podcast is brought to you by Introduction to Democracy Studies, an undergraduate course at the Department of International Relations, Universitas Gajah Mada. Hi, in this podcast we will be looking into theories of democratization. Having lived all our life, or most of it, in a democracy, we may have taken for granted how democracies come about. So let's take a quick survey of the literature on this topic. Many scholars have given their two cents on why democratization takes place. For analytical purposes, they are sometimes divided into two camps, those who take the preconditioned approach and those who are more agency-oriented. In a nutshell, the first camp argues that a country can only move from authoritarianism to democracy after it meets certain preconditions. It's like there's a threshold that a country needs to pass to be able to embark on the journey of democratization. Meanwhile, also in a nutshell, the second camp argues that Democratization is a result of the strategic interactions between political actors. Let's dive into those arguments. Let's start with the preconditions approach. Early studies of democratization, those that take place prior to the third wave of democratization, focus on identifying the preconditions that should be met before countries can embark on a transition towards democracy. These preconditions include economic development, civic culture, and class configuration. Seymour Martin Lipset's 1959 modernization theory is amongst the classics in the study of democratization. It displays a positive linear correlation between economic development or industrialization and democracy. The more well-to-do a nation, the greater the chances that it will sustain democracy, says Lipset. This hypothesis is tested by looking at levels of wealth, industrialization, urbanization, and education in democratic and non-democratic countries in Europe and Latin America. He finds that increases in wealth lead to democracy through six mechanisms. Number one, integrating the lower strata into the wider society. Number two, widening the middle class, the class that can reward moderate political parties and penalize extreme ones. Number three, forcing the upper class to respect the political rights of the lower strata. Number four, increasing the nation's political tolerance so that it does not really matter which side rules. Number five, enabling the creation of an effective bureaucracy, and number six, fostering a vibrant civil society. Meanwhile, Gabriel Almond and Sidney Verbas' 1963 study states that if the democratic model of the participatory state is to develop in these new nations, it will require more than the formal institutions of democracy. It requires, as well, a political culture consistent with it. But the transfer of the political culture of the West democratic states to the emerging nations encounters serious difficulties. End quote. They identified three political cultures, parochial, 
subject, and participant political cultures. Then, they pointed out that political cultures are mixed, meaning that there are three types of systematically mixed political cultures. The parochial subject culture, the subject participant culture, and the parochial participant culture. They suggested that democracy has the best chance of emerging and surviving in the subject-participant culture. They tested this hypothesis by looking into five democracies, the U.S., Great Britain, Germany, Italy, and Mexico. Barrington Moore, in his 1966 study, challenges both the modernization and civic culture explanations of democracy. He points out at how industrialization and authoritarianism could go hand-in-hand in in 19th century Japan and Germany, as well as how explaining behavior in terms of cultural values means engaging in circular reasoning. Applying a Marxist analysis, his explanation for democracy highlights class configurations. The emergence of a bourgeoisie, its alliance with the aristocracy in England, or peasantry as in France, as well as their confrontation with the monarchy. His statement, no bourgeois, no democracy, reflects the notion that the bourgeoisie is the only class with the genuine interest to move from a feudal to a capitalist society. Although the existence of the bourgeois is necessary, it is not sufficient for democracy. He proposes five conditions for democratic development. One, a balance between the crown and the landed aristocracy. Two, a turn toward an appropriate form of commercial agriculture. Three, the weakening of landed aristocracy. Four, the prevention of an aristocratic bourgeois coalition against peasants and workers, as well as five, a revolutionary break with the past. In their 1993 study, Evelyn Huber, Dietrich Ruschemeyer, and John Stephens posit that both economic development and class configurations are key factors in democratization, but disagree with Lipset and more on the details. Against Lipset's hypothesis, they argue that the relationship between economic development and democracy is not mediated by the expansion of the middle class, nor a differentiated and flexible form of government. Against more, they argue that democracy is not brought by the bourgeoisie. While this class makes important contributions to democratization, it is also hostile to advancing democratization when its interests are threatened. Huber, Ruschemeyer, and Stephens elaborate that economic development shifts the balance of class power. The land-owning class becomes weaker, while the subordinate classes becomes stronger. Here, the working and the middle classes gain an unprecedented capacity for self-organization due to such developments as urbanization, factory production, and new forms of communication and transportation. Each theory within the preconditioned approach has faced its own critiques. 
but altogether they are criticized for relying on stable economic, cultural, and social categories while trying to explain a rapidly changing situation. In O'Donnell and Smithers' words, where those very parameters of actions are in flux. This criticism does not deny the long-run causal impact of structural factors, but recognizes the high degree of indeterminacy embedded in situations where unexpected events, insufficient information, hurried and audacious choices, confusion about motives and interests, plasticity, and even indefinition of identities, as well as the talents of specific individuals, are frequently decisive in determining the outcomes. Also, as the third wave of democratization sweeps Southern Europe and Latin America, scholar activists find the precondition approach too limited in explaining the dynamics of transitions, especially since some authoritarian regimes only fall after long periods of economic prosperity. These scholar activists find macrostructural explanations useless ex ante, although satisfying ex post, especially because the inability to predict when an authoritarian regime collapses often costs human lives. Now we move on to the agency-oriented approach. The next generations of scholars turn their attention to the political actors who play central roles throughout the transition period. As it develops, the agency-oriented approach takes strategic interactions and game theory more seriously. Amongst the pioneers of this agentic approach is Dankwart Rusto. He proposes to look at democratization as a process that consists of the following phases. One, a background condition of national unity. Two, a preparatory phase marked by prolonged and inconclusive political struggles between entrenched forces. Three, a decision phase where political leaders negotiate and institutionalize upon some aspects of democratic procedure, and four, a habituation phase. Each of those phases has its own protagonists. I quote, The network of administrators or a group of nationalist literati for the task of unification, a mass movement of the lower class, perhaps led by the upper-class dissidents for the task of preparatory struggle, a small circle of political leaders skilled at negotiation and compromise for the formulation of democratic rules, and a variety of organization for the task of habituation, end quote. Rustow's study, conducted in 1970, accentuates not only process and actors, but also the idea that democracy is a result of some negotiations, not the result of fulfilling some preconditions. He suggests that the social or psychological circumstances surrounding each phase of democratization should be left open. In some cases, economic growth may trigger tensions at the preparatory phase, in other cases, other factors may play that role. Building upon Rustow's work, Guillermo O'Donnell and Philip Schmitter's study in 1986 suggests that every transition begins with divisions within the authoritarian regime itself. 
they point out that authoritarian regimes consist of hardliners who are holding on to the status quo and softliners who are more willing to negotiate with the opposition and promote a certain degree of liberalization. O'Donnell and Schmitter elaborate on the softliners' unique positions. On the one hand, softliners are in a position to threat that if opposition do not take the softliners' proposal of limited liberalization or democratization, softliners will return their support to the status quo. On the other hand, softliners are standing on a vulnerable position because the hardliner would not only try to punish the opposition, but also the softliners. When it becomes clear to all actors that they cannot unilaterally pursue their interest, they negotiate on a pact. The crux of the pact is that actors would, I quote, forego or underutilize their capacity to harm each other by extending guarantees to not threaten each other's corporate autonomies or vital interest, end quote. O'Donnell and Schmitter underline the irony of how democracy is usually put forward by undemocratic measures, negotiated compromise among a small number of elites. Adam Zaworski specifies O'Donnell and Schmitter's argument by putting forward a game theory analysis which models the strategic interaction between four political actors. One, the hardliners, two, the reformers, three, the moderates, and four, the radicals. The first two groups are within the authoritarian bloc, whereas the latter are groups within the opposition. This model clearly shows that democratization is a struggle on two fronts. One, against the authoritarian regime in order to bring about democracy, and two, among groups within the opposition in order to get the best cut once democracy is installed. Siworski notes the importance of focusing separately on the two aspects of democratization. One, extrication from the authoritarian regime, and two, the constitution of the democratic one. He argues that when the military is united in the defense of the authoritarian regime, extrication dominates the process of transition. Meanwhile, when the military is not cohesive, or is under effective civilian control, the transition is less affected by extrication. Furthermore, Seworski argues that extrication can only be brought about when 1. There is an agreement between reformers and moderates. 2. Reformers can deliver the consent of hardliners or neutralize them. And 3. Moderates can control radicals. What this means is that the installment of democracy depends on the ability of pro-democratic forces to act prudently, that is, prepare to offer concessions to those who are formally part of the authoritarian regime. In her 1999 study, Barbara Geddes finds support for the hypothesis that economic development increases chances for democracy and that authoritarian regimes are more likely to break down during an economic crisis.
However, she finds little evidence that PACs make democracy more likely and doubts that amnesty and likewise implicit contracts have substantial long-term effects. She distinguishes authoritarian regimes into 1. military, 2. single party, and 3. personalist. Upon applying separate game theory analysis for each regime, she shows how and why military regimes are more often associated with PACs and early transitions, while personalist regimes are more often associated with popular uprising and later transitions. Geddes models the democratization process in a military regime as a battle of sexes game. Here, the actors consist of the minority and majority factions in the military. Both actors have the choices of intervening, that is, seizing power through coup d'etat or staying in barracks. While the minority's interest is best served by intervening and the majority's interest is best served by staying in barracks, each prefer to be in unison, which is consistent with the logic of a coordination game. Since all factions value the unity and the capacity of the military institution more than holding office, military regimes cling less tightly to power and often initiate transitions. Meanwhile, Geddes depicts democratization process in a single-party regime as a stack-hunt game. While factions have different policy preferences and compete against each other for office, each is better off when all factions remain united and stay in office. Since no faction prefers to rule alone and neither of them would voluntarily withdraw from office, this becomes a co-optation game rather than an exclusion game. Similarly, in a personalist regime, neither faction would voluntarily withdraw from office. However, one, the ruling faction may have more incentives to exclude the rival faction, and two, there is more severe cost for the rival faction excluded from office. This explains why personalist regimes tend to hold on to power as long as possible, which makes them more likely to be overthrown by a popular uprising or a rebellion. Given the nature of their withdrawal, military regimes tend to end in negotiations, whereas personalist regimes tend to end in coups, which are often accompanied by widespread violence. Meanwhile, single-party regimes, although much more reluctant than military regimes to withdraw, have higher incentives than personalist regimes to strike an extrication deal. So now for a bit of a wrap-up. There have been so many explanations on the causes of democratization, way more than what we've tried to cover in this recording. One way to systematically understand them is to see how some of them focus on preconditions while others focus on agency. The first camp underlines that a country can only switch from authoritarianism to democracy after meeting a certain threshold. The second camp underlines that a country can only switch from authoritarianism 
to democracy when certain alliances and ordeals are made between political actors in the country. The more recent theories of democratization try to be mindful of both camps. Heavy on the political economy side, their contention is more on the endogenous versus exogenous theories of democracy, which is discussed in a separate podcast. See you!